Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Taylor Borby grew up in the 1990s in the small town of Center, North Dakota. In a new book titled Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, he discusses what happens when you don't fit in where you're planted. It's published by Livright and brings poet and environmental activist Taylor Borby to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I doubt uh, that many of uh, my listeners have ever heard of Center, North Dakota. Did it get its name because it's in the center of North Dakota, which fittingly is close to the center of North America? It's so wild, Leonard. What happened was it was called Center because it's in the center of Oliver County. But the most dramatic thing to happen there recently is it's vying to be the center of North America, competing with the other town in the state, Rugby, North Dakota, which has had that title for about 100 years. Do you think it has a good case? (laughs) I I think so. There's some professor at the University of Buffalo in New York State that did some scientific Mm. uh, calculations that said, in fact, center, ironically, is the center of the North American continent. So I'll take whatever (laughs) attention my little hometown can get. But when you were growing up, it was so small, it didn't even have a stoplight. Does it have one now? It doesn't. There's not a stoplight in the county. There's not a grocery store. Really? So you have to drive just to get a, a, a container of milk? That That's right. You can probably get it at the, the one gas station in the county. But we're mm-hmm. talking about a town that is the county seat, the biggest town in the county. It's 600 people. Wow. Uh, you write that center is a place where people only end up. Who ends up there? It's farming and ranching country. It's the center of coal mining in North Dakota. People migrated from the northwestern corner of North Dakota and Divide County, where coal country was happening, when coal was discovered in Oliver County in the 1960s. So it was a sort of boom for a type of economy. But the interstate doesn't run through there. You have to literally be going to center if you want to see it. But you say coal mines and farms, less about oil than your title suggests? A little less than oil, though there are sections about living in the Bakken oil boom, but I suppose I'm being a little cheeky uh, in my title as well, because we use oil for other things, especially when you're a gay man. Now, you do point out that the area can be quite beautiful, despite the, the fact that it's mines and, and farms and oil. I think it's one of the most stunning landscapes on the planet. As I say in the book, the prairie teaches you to notice. It's subtle. It's not grand like the Tetons, but it trains your eye in different shades of greens in summertime or browns in the fall of it's not just brown it's ochre sienna and umber and i try to reveal how beautiful that tapestry is in my book do you think that it's uh, one of the reasons that you wound up writing poetry i think it is it's such a a landscape on a magnitude we cannot process it i think it's why we have to call it flyover country. But to me, North Dakota, especially Western North Dakota, it's biblical. I mean, you could 
You could go back to the Old Testament and read Psalms, and it's uh, that's the type of language that comes out of this landscape, this sort of grandiosity and poetry asks us to evoke the most essential uh, you know, language to describe something. What did your parents do for a living? My father, for much of my life, was a graveyard shift welder for Bobcat. So he made skid steer loaders and things like this. And my mother spent the entirety of her career at the local coal power plant, Minkota Power, uh, which is right on Nelson Lake, which is a lake that never freezes in North Dakota. And every lake in North Dakota is supposed to freeze, but that lake doesn't freeze because the water from that reservoir is used to cool the coal-fired turbine engines of that coal power plant. I'm assuming that uh, there's still water there because there are areas uh, in the West. Well, I guess this is the center of the country, but uh, areas that have had real problems in just getting rain. That's right. I mean, North Dakota generally, west of the 100th meridian where I grew up, you need to irrigate to do farming, but it's usually supplanted by ranching at that point. So a lot more cattle operations. But North Dakota, generally speaking, especially in the eastern half, gets enough rain to allow farming and agriculture to happen. So it's not as water poor as where I'm talking to you from right now, Leonard, in Salt Lake City. Now, you write that the prairie could burn boys who liked boys, that it wasn't safe to be gay. How old were you when you realized you were gay? You know, for me, the definitive answer for that comes when I hit puberty. I think that's when I really knew that my body reacted to other men. I was surrounded by straight boys who were talking about girls and feeling things that I did not feel about girls. And I thought, oh, man, what's wrong with me? I'm not having this sort of reaction. And I realized that it would my body would react to men at very bad times or that I had urges that it seemed like what the boys I was surrounded by were describing about girls. But since no one talked about that, I thought there must be something wrong with me. I can't share this. No one's talking about being attracted to other boys or men. So this, this isn't normal, you know, and there were maybe things that we could say, I enjoyed when I was younger that were stereotypically gay. But I think for me, I really come down that when I hit puberty, that's when the attraction to men uh, happened for me. Did you even know that there was such a thing as uh, a gay culture? The only way I had insight to this, I mean, we're talking about a time when there was dial up Internet, when you had to you know, wait for that paper airplane to connect you through your telephone line where I grew up. But at this point, there was the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and then there was Will and Grace on NBC. But both of those were in New York City, which is a long ways if you haven't heard from Center North Dakota. So I thought, oh, there are people like this there, but there aren't anyone, there isn't anyone like me here, and I don't see men like this in the area that I grew up in. So I thought maybe there were men like me, but it's so hard to articulate at that point, Leonard, because it 
more sat in my mind like something was wrong and I needed to be fixed and that I would see men on television, those programs who weren't quite like me, but they were different. And so it planted a seed that maybe other places had people that were different from where I was growing up. Your sister suspected something, didn't she? Oh, she, yeah, my... (laughs) My sister, when I want to annoy her, I used to watch Mary Poppins every other day as a child. And if I want to get under her skin, I just have to sing two pitches from any song on that movie and she'll she'll get annoyed. But I think it was that my hobbies were just so different from other boys. I, I wasn't into football or into basketball or into cars. I was into drawing and painting and coin collecting and i loved classical music well and, no, you don't have to be gay to like those no, things. no that's exactly right that's exactly right but i think in sort of small limited ways of viewing the world those things make you a misfit maybe they certainly don't make you gay that's exactly right but i think when you're in rural america there's such a push to fit in into masculine stereotypes and if you don't then questions start being raised your grandparents accepted it both of my grandpas i got to come out to both of them my grandmothers unfortunately died before i could come out to them though there are inclinations in my mind that they must have suspected something about their grandson but both of my grandpas one has passed since the book was written and another just turned 90 last week. Both were incredible. I mean, it it was as if I told them I liked Rocky Road ice cream instead of (laughs) pistachio ice cream. But your parents found it difficult to accept. Didn't your mother say when you came out, but we don't know any gay people? That's right. I I was outed to my parents actually... 12 years ago today, today's my oldest nephew's 17th birthday, and I was outed by an aunt on his fifth birthday. And my parents, when they came into my bedroom to sort of confront me about this, my mother said exactly what you just repeated, but we don't know any gay people. And I had enough quick-witted insight to say, you lived with one for 18 years. Mm. And, and I think that can be unsettling for someone because uh, my parents loved me. I mean, they they thought I was special in the way most parents probably do and, and had a son that they maybe didn't quite understand because he was really into jazz band or practicing his saxophone obsessively. And, and they were both all-state athletes, but they supported me and they paid for piano lessons and saxophone lessons. But this detail just shocked their system, it seems, now when I think about it, that it couldn't compute. And because it couldn't compute, it became a very negative thing. And did she reject you? Did you uh, and your father? Yeah, I I haven't spoken to my parents or seen them in five years, so we don't maintain contact. Even now, even though you're a published author and gotten great reviews for your books? (laughs) That's right. Yep, that's right. I think that's one of the hard things I've been learning is uh, how to set boundaries and to really acknowledge that. I mean, Leonard, my parents were my parents were wonderful 
until they weren't. Mm. And then when they weren't, it became uh, an issue where I had to, you know, go to therapy and set very strong boundaries. And when those boundaries were crossed, I had to set firmer boundaries. And that's hard at the time. It's not that it's not hard now. It's just that I've learned ways of dealing with that. And a person needs to continue living his or her their life. And so I'm moving forward with mine. And you write, I no longer feel ashamed for the person I am. How long was that process? A long process. I mean, there is so much when you come from a certain culture that wants you to be something you're not or maybe doesn't support who you are, that there are always these questions of saying, you know, it would be so much easier if I were straight. And that's certifiably true. But I love being gay. I love... I, I you love are who, who I, you are. I am who I am. You know, take it or leave it, you know? And and I think that's a, a continual process of becoming and that I've realized part of what I love about myself is is that I'm a writer who's hopefully trying to write books that help other people or allows people to feel seen or understood. And, and I really like that about myself. But I, you were growing up in, an, in a very red part of this country. And I suspect that if there was a vote on gay rights in your area, uh, you would have been voted out of your area. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. And one of the frustrations about this, Leonard, is that at the turn of the 20th century, North Dakota was one of the most socialist states in the country. There are still institutions that the Nonpartisan League helped start. There's a state bank in North Dakota. There's a state mill. There's a state grain elevator. And somehow within a few generations, North Dakota has become one of the reddest states. And a governor and, who is incredible, who cited every so often when uh, red governors are brought up. That's right. And, and it's a place where queer youth do not feel safe. I mean, there have been some, over the past few years, some major headlines that have come out of North Dakota, even in the New York Post, where two young girls, 11 and 12, in Devil's Lake, the northeastern part of the state, uh, basically did a Romeo and Juliet suicide act. And that those are the stories that are coming out of North Dakota. And it's it's very frustrating, Leonard, because we say so often how much we want to protect children, support children. But North Dakota is telling a very bad story for queer youth right now that it is a place where it's more acceptable probably for you to come out as a member of the Proud Boys than gay. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Taylor Brorby, B-R-O-R-B-Y. His latest book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, is published by Live Right. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. From what you've been saying, grade school might not have been the happiest place for you to be when you were growing up. Uh, since you were bookish, not terribly sports-minded, did that mark you for bullying? It marked me for bullying. I mean, part of what I did have to my advantage was, as I had said earlier, both of my parents are all state athletes. So I had to be first in the 100-yard dash. I had to be able 
to do the most pull-ups in gym class. Or, so I was coordinated in those ways, but I didn't participate in sports, uh, you know, competing in basketball or football or track. And so my hobbies were different. And Well, you were interested in art and music, but as I said earlier, yeah. an awful lot of straight people have been interested in art and music over yes. the course yes. of history. And yes. meanwhile, and I'm, people I'm gr- called you a girl because of that? That's right, because I think it it's a, a practice that requires attention and obsession, and it's quiet. It's not brutal. Uh, the prairie is a brutal landscape, especially in winter. I mean, it exposes everything. There aren't many places to hide if you're a, a non-human animal. And if you're a human animal and you're exposed, it can make you a target for bullying uh, and... You're right. I mean, I was called, you know, a sissy. I was calling it a word that rhymes with tag and begins with an F. And I didn't know what those words meant. But the way that other boys said them, I knew whatever they were, I didn't want to be them. But I didn't give up my passions because those passions kept me alive. I mean, practicing the saxophone allowed me to express myself. Since I couldn't talk about how I felt or who I was with any human I was close by to, I went out into the landscape. And the great thing about the prairie, it has space. It can hold what you're feeling. You also liked fishing, didn't you? Oh, I loved fishing. I still love fishing. I love fly fishing. And it's a meditative practice. And that's what I mean by saying the prairie could hold what I was feeling to go out there, it was very clear what my relationship was with, you know, a great blue heron or if a badger was chasing me. You know, I, I knew what our relationship was, where humans were more complicated and maybe more conniving. Well, you, you, you write that your classmates played video games and worked on the family ranch. Well, you didn't, weren't, didn't have a family ranch. But uh, it seems to me that some of the things... You you weren't all that different. Uh, so were you effeminate? Was that part of the the issue here? I think part of it was that instead of playing football or basketball, I competed in speech, which was the closest thing to acting we had. And every weekend you would go to these other small towns and do your recitations, whether they were dramatic monologues or humorous duos or things like this. And then I would start qualifying for state speech meets. And that's a very individualistic pursuit compared to, you know, the football team would lose every Friday. And on the Monday announcements, they would say that. And then they would say Taylor Brorby got third place and qualified for Mm -hmm. state and this speech. So it made you a target because instead of being part of a group, you were an individual. And then if you were very good at this thing that wasn't so common to participate in, that made you different and made you a target for bullying because it was close to acting and and acting in the school I grew up in leads to assuming you must be gay. And that was just different. It was just different. I wouldn't say I was overtly effeminate. Uh, it was just that the things I was interested in weren't things the other boys were interested in. Well, you couldn't have been the only gay person in North Dakota. Are you surprised that there are so few gay narratives in the literature of the American West? Uh, Annie Prue's Brokeback Mountain uh, is one of the only ones that comes to mind. 
I'm very frustrated by that fact, Leonard. I think we need a real renaissance of Great Plains, Intermountain West literature, both in nonfiction and fiction. It's exactly as you say, when I've asked many of my favorite writers when I was working on this book, can you think of a memoir about growing up gay in the Intermountain West or Northern Great Plains? Nothing comes to mind. The only thing as you suggest, that comes to mind is that 28-page short story, mm -hmm. Brokeback Mountain by Annie Prue, which of course is fiction. But for me, my life isn't fiction. It's why for me it was important to write a memoir and to help rural queer youth see at least a story where life goes on because I don't know if your listeners have read Brokeback Mountain recently. It's violent. I mean, it is mm. it is more nonfiction than anything I know because that is such low-hanging fruit. And what we know to be true when you're queer in the West is that bodily harm very easily could be coming your way. I mean, just the other day when I was driving to Salt Lake City, I stopped at the site where Matthew... Shepard was assaulted and left for 18 hours to die. It's now a subdevelopment. The road says no trespassing. The fence has been taken down. There's no memorial. You would not know that a horrific act in American history happened in this beautiful landscape with these cookie cutter subdevelopment houses. Interestingly, uh, you say Medora which is mm -hmm. in the area, is the gayest town in the West. How far is it from center? Medora is probably about 100 miles from so center. So it's close. It's close. It's, it's especially with a speed limit of 75. You can get there very quickly. It's very close to the Montana border. It's socked in the southern badlands of North Dakota. And that's where anybody who's gay might likely wind up? <laughs> well, I'm being a little cheeky when I say it's the gayest town in the West. It's a company town now. It was resurrected by Harold Schaefer, who is the founder of Mr. Bubble. And so it's sort of stereotypical Wild West. There's saltwater taffy. You can have old-time photos taken. But there's an outdoor amphitheater that every night in the summer there are two showings of uh, what's called the Medora musical with high kicking cowboys and cowgirls. And, and it's wonderful. It's the burning Hills amphitheater and most gay clubs around the country have this obsession with the wild West, like in mm -hmm. Seattle, a gay clubs named pony or in Des Moines, Iowa, it's blazing saddles or mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, it's the saloon. And so there are just these ways where, Medora is so very queer because it plays into these stereotypes of the Wild West uh, rather than into the actual story of the Wild West. But uh, on the other side, the Trevor Project recently released findings that last year, 45% of LGBTQ youth contemplated suicide at some point. Did you contemplate suicide? Multiple times, multiple times. And that's why I'm so grateful for you sharing that statistic because it's horrifying what's recently come yeah, out. That that's it's actually, almost half of all gay right. kids at one point or another thinking of killing themselves. That's right. And those numbers are higher with trans youth and BIPOC queer youth as well. And I needed to write a book that showed that I survived, <clears throat> pardon me, somehow 
in eighth grade with all that bullying, I made a list, reasons to live and reasons to die. And there were so many reasons to live on my list, Leonard. And the only reason to die that I wrote on there was because I am gay. And that is a bad reason to think about killing yourself. It is, no one should kill themselves, first of all, but it is so hard to think that we are living in a time and in a culture that is saying to queer youth, it's a viable option for you to kill yourself or to contemplate it. And that is so insulting to the type of world that I wanna be living in and trying to create, but it has been a part of my story, suicidal ideation and contemplating that at, at different times in my life, partly because of what happened with the fallout of my parents. Well, but you did leave town. You went to high school in Bismarck, the state capital, and yep. then college and, and graduate school out of state. And uh, you must have uh, come in contact with a fair number of gay people in those larger environments. That's right. I mean, with each move, it felt like the world went from black and white into color. When we moved from center 40 miles away to Bismarck, which was a great gift my parents gave me, they moved for me. They knew things were not going well in center. My mother was uh, working at the local power plant and my dad was working in Bismarck. So they just switched who commuted. And I went to a town, Bismarck, North Dakota, that at the time was a hundred times bigger than center. But in that town, the first year I was there, my sophomore year of high school in my gym class was the only out gay boy in high school named Levi. And the athletes there circulated a petition to have him change in the girls' locker room. And that kept me and other people I knew in the closet I had a very dear friend in high school who's in the book, Drew. We were part of the same small friend group of four boys, four girls. Both of us are gay men. We never told each other. We never even really suspected because the depth of the closet that we felt we had to be in in North Dakota was so far. But then when I left there and went to St. Olaf College, there were gay men there and, and there were classes around, you know, gender identity and queer studies. And so... I found that there were spaces where people actually talked about this and that it wasn't whispered or, or murmurs. And, and that showed me that there were different ways of living in the world, which allowed me to be more of myself. But interestingly, you became an environmentalist in grad school, although I guess I shouldn't be surprised because North Dakota was once a shallow sea filled with trilobites that are now the pulverized bodies that we call oil and natural gas. Uh, so is this something that was uh, up for discussion throughout your youth? I think what happened when I was growing up in North Dakota was that seeds were planted in my mind. You know, we hunted and, and ate venison and, and pheasant and pronghorn antelope or went fishing and we kept walleye and ate them and my grandparents made their own sausage and we had, you know, a fourth of an acre vegetable garden. And so even though people wouldn't necessarily call themselves environmentalists, they were living much closer to the land mm -hmm. than people who are shopping at Whole Foods, you know. And 
And that planted seeds in my mind alongside growing up near a very large drag line that was tearing away that precious prairie soil that we weren't talking about it so much, but it was so around us. I mean, when you grow up in a town of 600, nature is everywhere. You know, it takes you all 30 seconds to get out into the wider world. But college cracked open my brain around things like climate change or sustainable food systems or the erosion of topsoil and things like this. So it became more academic and cerebral where I had been taught it as observational in my youth by experience. And that led you to become one of the protesters of the Dakota Access Pipeline? That's right. That pipeline originates in my home state in North Dakota and goes under the Missouri River. And probably a lot of your listeners will know about the protest at Sanding Rock, especially in 2016. But that pipeline was announced. I was going to graduate school in Ames, Iowa at Iowa State. And I got there in 2014, and it's very scary whenever I move to a new place. It seems a new uh, environmental disaster is coming to town. But that pipeline was announced, and I had been living in the Bakken oil boom the prior summer and thought, I need to go around the state and educate people about what pipelines are and what they do and what this oil is like. And so in 2016, in August, I was the first person in Iowa, arrested over the Dakota Access Pipeline. You're listening to Leonard Lopin at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm gay. Gay means happy. I'm feeling gay today. You see my fingers snapping. I want to see the world. Don't feel like napping today. I'm queer. Let's be clear. When I say the word queer, I, I mean exactly. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Taylor Brorby. If you decided to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Taylor Brorby, whose book, Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, is published by Live Right. He's also written Coming Alive Action and Civil Disobedience. He's written a poetry collection called Crude. He's the co-editor of Fracture Essays, Poems, and Stories on Fracking in America, and a contributing editor at North American Review. He serves on the editorial boards of Terrain.org and Hub City Press, and he is the Annie Tanner Clark Fellow in Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah. Have I left anything out? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's pretty comprehensive, Leonard. (laughs) Thank you. Well... But it's an impressive list of accomplishments. Um, what happened with the pipeline? Was it discontinued, or is was it were the protests uh, just useless? I wouldn't call them useless, though. Protests very rarely. Uh, being a, someone who protests, you have to understand that losing is also a condition of 
protesting. You know, the pipeline was built, oil flows through it, um, you know, 24, 25 million gallons of Bakken oil a day. All the way but, down to the south, right? That's right. right. All the way down to the Gulf where it's mm. refined and shipped out on the world market. It connects with an existing pipeline, Patoka, Illinois, that then shoots it down to the Gulf. And uh, I think it it raised the conversation, especially with the focus on Standing Rock around indigenous issues, about treaties that were violated, about water rights. But we were also seeing in Iowa about eminent domain and farmers either signing over their land or eminent domain being declared and effectively their land being stolen to use for the construction of this pipeline. Because under the George W. Bush administration, eminent domain articulated what was called the Halliburton loophole that allows, since our culture relies on natural gas and oil, that it's a public necessity and convenience. And since that's the case, then anything that serves the fossil fuel industry can use the tool of eminent domain since our lives depend on the on fossil fuels right now. Well, there has been uh, a serious opposition to uh, fossil fuels uh, in this country, and it's kind of one of the things that has divided Americans uh, and also uh, – been at the center of the whole debate over climate change. But it's interesting that most of the states that are affected by climate change, uh, not all of them, but many of them, are, are represented by people who fight any legislation for climate change. I'm thinking especially of Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul are the senators, and uh, Kentuckians are going through a terrible time right now. I'm assuming something similar has happened in North Dakota and uh, any uh, of, of a number of, of states that have been affected by, by climate change. That's right. I, I recently, just last week, moved across the country, and I was driving through Kentucky before those horrific uh, rainfalls and flooding happened. And I was telling a friend that the corn I was seeing in Kentucky right now is, I'm a very small man, I'm only five, six, and it was shorter than I was and was already brown. And that's not what corn should be looking like at this point in the summer. And then to have a torrential deluge of water is just horrific. And Kentucky, of course, is known as is West Virginia and Joe Manchin for blowing up its mountains for coal. We're seeing here in Salt Lake City the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake. And this is a state that loves to plunge its landscape with pipes to extract oil and natural gas and flaring it. And much of these places, I believe, Leonard, have been sold a short bill of goods that they're only good for what can be taken from them. And normally it's a violent type of taking, whether it's monoculture agriculture that erodes topsoil, which we need to grow food, or if it's pulling coal and burning it for electricity or extracting you know, natural gas to heat our homes or oil to help run our cars. Uh, so you live in Salt Lake City, but you write a lot about your love of the prairie, the ponderosa mm -hmm. and sage, the big sky. So what do you miss most about where you grew up 
Yeah, would man. it even be possible to return to it, or would it be just as hostile as it was when you were a kid? I think it's even more hostile now than when I was growing up because certain people have been empowered to speak very violently and openly. And it's a very risky time to have a book like this drop and to be going around the American West for book events when people feel emboldened and empowered. I mean, we're talking about cultures where people find books more threatening than firearms. You know, we're banning books instead of firearms. I, I miss that wide open space. I mean, the other day when I was driving across southern Wyoming, I could just feel myself breathing easier because I am a product of the prairie and having that wide open space, you can see things that are, you know, if a coyote is going to chase you, you'll probably see it coming. I get very claustrophobic in forests. I feel like anything could jump out at any place. But I think what I miss about that wide open sky and that ocean of grass is it is an incredible landscape to paint ideas against, to create literature out of, because there is so much space that can hold those stories. And, and that's what I miss. It's really the source of my creative well. Well, I, I think of that area as predominantly white. Was there a Native American presence in that area when you were growing up? There is. There were two Native American families in my small town. And then, of course, there, there is the Standing Rock Reservation. There's the Fort Berthold Reservation farther up the Missouri River. There's the Turtle Mountain Reservation more in the northern northeast corner of the state. And I will also say, I mean, black people have been in North Dakota as long as European settlers have. It's not a state known for its diversity. Some diversity has increased due to the Bakken oil boom. That's about the one uh, compliment I can give the boom is it, it, it increased the diversity in the state. But most people look like me or are made up of my ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. That's either Scandinavians or Germans from Russia, what we now call Ukrainians. The book is written in chapters that often for stand as kind of standalone essays. And you said that when you were in graduate school in St. Paul, Minnesota, you took a class called the essay that single-handedly changed your life. It was wild. I mean... <laughs> I was a classic literature major in college, which I loved, you know, reading everything from the Hebrew Bible and the Epic of Gilgamesh all the way up to Toni Morrison and, and so on. And when I stumbled into grad school in Minnesota, taking that class called The Essay, I thought all essays were thesis-driven academic essays. And this class just cracked open my brain like an egg on a skillet. I mean, we read... Nancy Mears, how it feels, uh, or, you know, I'm being crippled, or Zora Neale Hurston, how it feels to be colored me, or Michelle de Montaigne, huh? or your brother Leonard. Yeah. I mean, it was this way of pursuing ideas on the page that you could pull from what you knew, either the body of literature or history or your own life experience, and create a wonderful narrative experience for the reader. It was life-changing for me. I, there's no other way to say that. I, I found it such a way of cracking open the well of what I wanted to express and could do research on to be persuasive or informative. It was a wonderful way to stumble into writing. 
My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Taylor Brorby, whose latest book is Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land from Live Right. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Although uh, you say the essay was important, you also say that you've learned more about your craft from musicians than you have from writers. And did, have, didn't Robert Weil advise you to think of each section of this book like a movement in a symphony? <laughs> <laughs> You've got it, Leonard. I mean, Robert Weil is just one of the genius editors. He's been such a gift in my life, and he loves opera. And I I know opera, but I, I don't love it in the way that Bob does. But I love symphonies in particular. And when we were talking about this book and the form that it should take, he had said it needs to have sections and you need to think of each section like a movement in a symphony tailor. Now, movements don't necessarily get faster, but they increase in intensity, even if they're slower. And the movements don't end with bombs, but they end with flourishes. And when he said that to me, Leonard, I knew exactly how to structure this book. I just said, we're good. We're great. I'll think of it as Rorby's first symphony in many mm-hmm. ways. But, but part of that process, to your earlier observation about musicians, is when I listen to writers talk about their creative process, I am so suspicious, sitting quietly in my mind going, oh, that'd never work. You know, oh, no, that's mm-hmm. not how you do it. Things like this. But other artists, visual artists, composers, or classical musicians, when they talk about how they approach a piece, it resonates in a new way, how they think about composition. Or my friend Ari Isaacman Beck, who's part of the Dali Quartet, he has taught me that music actually has a grammar, and there are sentences, and then there are paragraphs. And so we talk in those ways, and there's something about other artists being close, but not in my practice of writing that triggers something in my mind and gives me new insight into my own process. And where does poetry come into all of this? Because you've published a, a, a book of poetry. Poetry is the highest form of written language that we have. It's basically trying to make everything as close to marrow as possible. That is essential Words have to sing and ring and sentences have to have rhythm and meter. And I think that is essential in prose writing. There is so much that can be learned by practicing poetry, even if a writer considers themselves bad. I mean, Mm -hmm. my book is written with a lot of S and CK sounds because the prairie, the symphony of the prairie sounds like swishing grass that's interrupted with coyote calls or or pheasant clucks. And I wanted the reader, even if they're not reading it out loud, to feel that, to hear that in their inner ear, that opening that you had read briefly, the, the prologue, the C section has a lot of S sounds because that's what the ocean sounds like to me. You have a few very scary scenes of violence in this book or potential violence. And and uh, you show a strong connection between violence against the land and violence against other humans. In 2019, just to pick out one of the parts in the book, I was living on the Olympic Penis- Peninsula, fly fishing, writing, and every day I would go into Forks, which is famous for the Twilight series. 
But Forks is known as the logging capital of the world. And there are forest plantations that surround the town and huge clear cuts. There are cemeteries of stumps. And I would go every day to the small gym in town uh, to exercise. And then one day when I had something come up and had to go in the evening, I was living about 15 miles out of Forks down a very narrow road at a dome house on the Solduck River. Uh, I noticed I was being followed from the gym and I, Forks is not a very big town. And I was taking side streets and roundabout ways and this truck kept with me and can I interrupt you for a second? Yep. You've spent way too much time in small towns. <laughs> I know, know Leonard, but it's This one of those... wouldn't have happened to you in New York or in Los <laughs> no, Angeles or San no, Francisco. No, you know, I know, but I feel like I have to be like, you know, a missionary from the small towns for, you know, I don't know. There's something about, I want to get where the action is. And so maybe it's foolish or naive for me to, it, 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 I, I love culture. I love the symphony. I love art museums, all those things. Life in that way would be much easier. But there's something about being in landscapes that make you feel small that I need. You know, I, I feel very big when I'm in New York City because everything around there is man-made. But when you're, you know, staring at huge glaciated mountains or, or, or fly fishing in the Ho River on the Olympic Peninsula, I, I am reminded of where real power comes from. But that, like you say, comes with risk. And I had to pull over on the road and I pretended to basically lose my mind at this person who followed me. And I called the local police after he uh, turned around and found out that he was some local guy who was, you know, a victim of serving in foreign wars and was a little unstable, but wouldn't hurt a fly from what they said. But how was I to know that? You know, and I knew I couldn't go down that rural road to my dome house because I would have been stuck. I, I would have been trapped. And that can turn very dangerous very quickly, of course. Well, you say you want to be where the action is, but don't some of your friends call you an armchair environmentalist? <laughs> yes, they, they do, because I think most You, you people... say you like to go out swimming, fishing, but you do, you also say that you hardly go into nature because you're a type 1 diabetic and it can be dangerous out there, especially if you're alone. That's right. That's exactly right. And I come to the environmental way of thinking more through political systems or social movements in those ways or writing out of my own personal experience. I'm, I love a good hotel room, Leonard, more mm -hmm. than I do sleeping in a tent. I mean, I'll sleep in a tent on occasion, but I don't go out into nature by myself for that reason you just shared that i'm a type 1 diabetic and if something starts to go wrong it can turn very dangerous very quickly and also you know being a, a gay man out in uh, nature in some stunning environments can turn dangerous because of other humans that might be out there as well and so i love that wide world uh but it is pretty cheeky. Uh, you know, I get called the armchair environmentalist, but I, of my friends, I'm the only one who's been arrested you know, protesting pipelines. So I come from it more from extractive economies and things like that rather than writing about flowers or, or um, animals in those ways. Are you planning to write about the growing amount of anti-gay legislation that's been happening around the country? 
I am going to be touring this fall for about two months and talking with college students a lot about that. And I hope that there'll be some opportunities to be publishing essays in particular around that. And, you know, the future of my writing, I think, is going to be really rooted to the Great Plains and exploring issues with gay characters and, and queer narratives there to just help people both on the coasts and in the center of the country understand that gay people have always been a part of the American narrative, even if uh, people don't want to admit that. And so I think the time is really ripe for this conversation because there's a lot on the line for people like me. Well, why do you think we're even seeing this happening now, considering the fact that uh, in my my sense, most of these issues were resolved a long time ago? I think in certain places, these issues were resolved. And I my sense is that there has been a quiet stewing or brewing in certain regions or in certain populations that have been told to stomach it, this legislation, let's say gay marriage or women's rights that they ultimately don't like. And I don't claim to fully understand where that comes from, since from my perspective, most people in rural America are the victims of industrial capitalism and are victims, but they would not like to see themselves that way. And so I wonder if part of it of feeling disenfranchised means you strike out against people who are different from you or you want to control people's bodies because uh, you feel out of control because you've been sold a short list of goods. I don't yet know, Leonard, why that's happening. But what you're hitting on is I think it's why we need more writers from rural America to help us understand this, because I don't have the single answer. But I think if we can get more people in these spaces, thinking and writing and creating around these issues, we might have a better sense of how this has happened. We just have about a minute and a half left. Is there anything else that you think we should have talked about that I've left out? I, I think we've covered a great amount, but what I would really like to say and to hit home for your listeners is that, you know, I really hope my book is an opening and an invitation for other writers to share their stories. My story in this book is only one story from that part of the world. And there are as you point other... out, as you pointed out, there's been very little literature about uh, this sort of thing uh, in, in terms of the American West. That's right. And I mean, there are there are editors out there who are calling for not only gay nonfiction, but literature that involves queer characters. And I think that is part of also my mission and in, in being on book tour and speaking and saying, this is one story. We need much more. And that is something the prairie thrives in its natural diversity. And so we need a diversity of voices to give us a better sense of what we're working with. And and I've just really appreciated the opportunity to be here, Leonard. And, and I hope this book does some good work in the world. And I've appreciated your being here because it's been a really interesting conversation. And my great thanks to you for being on our show. I've been speaking with Taylor Brorby. His book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, is published by Live Right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Leonard. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And be sure to check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Uh, Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Things have been really rough during this pandemic, and money has gotten very tight. Uh, And uh, I'm pretty much the only one who comes into the station these days to do a radio show. Everybody else is doing it from home. We, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopin at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land by Taylor Brorby. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you with a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. And that allows us to plan for the future. If we know that $10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever is going to be coming in on a regular basis. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. After all, this is Historic Station is the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help us keep it alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest, Will Bunch, will discuss his new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls. We'll see you then.